Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here. Welcome to another sponsored episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Greybeards bloggers together with storage assistant vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. Now it is my pleasure to introduce Tad Lebeck, USA CTO of Ioneer. So, Tad, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what's going on at Ioneer? Yeah. So, nice to meet you, Ray. Um, yeah, Ioneer is, you know, one of the companies solving that persistent data problem in uh, Kubernetes, you know, for stateful applications. But um, we take a very different approach to it because, you know, the Kubernetes value prop is really around being able to run your applications anywhere that makes sense and moving them pretty easily. Um, but stateful applications really kind of drag that down. You get anchored to where your data is. Um, you know, a lot of people call that data gravity. Um, what we've done is a unique thing where we're able to move data across space and time. And I, that sounds really kind of great, doesn't it? It's a cute trick if you can do it. I, I'll say that much. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and, and, and we do kind of bend the laws of physics with this too, because, you know, like across time is pretty straightforward. You know, we've seen this with other products in the past where you have continuous data protection. Because our architecture, um, the, the way the storage system works is that we're able to dial back time uh, to one second increments. So, you know, for instance, if you're running a, a database and you, you dropped a table space by accident, shame on you, but instead of having to go back to the most recent snapshot, you can simply say, you know what, I'm just going to dial it back to the second before I did that, and boom, you're back up and running again. Um, and that's a really clever thing. So you don't have to think about doing snapshots. It's just automatically done as you're operating your data. Oh, that's nice. Uh, there's always limitations on how much that of that you can do and stuff like that and the change rate and things of that nature. But well, I guess we'll get into the, some of that stuff later. Yeah. And then the other thing where it really gets kind of, crazy is moving across space and you know we, we have this great demo where we um we take a a mongo database running in new york and we teleport it over to dublin ireland and you know mongo has a way to you know say replicate that data over there and then bring it up so you can actually have remote access over there and so what we do in the demo is we start the mongo process for that and then we start the ioneer way of doing that and we're able to get that data up and accessible within 40 seconds. It takes Mongo a little bit longer to kind of get itself initialized, but we run queries on the New York side. And then when it's up and available on the Dublin side, we do the same queries. You can see the data is there. And we're able to get that up and going an order of magnitude faster than the Mongo. Ah, an order of magnitude faster. That's very impressive. Are, are you replicating before, or, or is this something that's done the instant you say, go ahead and do this? Well, so, so it has to do with how the architecture works. And so we don't, you know, the tr traditional data addressing for, for, for storage is, you know, you have a volume and a volume offset, and you kind of, you know, in your persistent volume, that's how you access it. We present that through the container storage interface, but beneath the, underneath the covers, we actually have a way of, naming the data we you know we, we create a unique name for it and when we teleport that across we send over that 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 library of of, of names so that the, the remote site can start accessing it things that are available in a, in a globally deduped data store are available immediately things that aren't they can reach across and pull them over so you can start accessing the data you have longer latencies to start with all rights are local so it's up and running 
as soon as you're able to get that 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 library or that directory, the metadata, yeah, define the data sitting on the persistent volumes. Exactly, and so that allows us to really create um, as many copies as you want without any replication necessary, because you know the the data is just referenced, and if it's in the same cluster, there's no actual there's no copy on write per se. It's just simply we write new data the way our our, our data store works is it's immutable. So every write is, is you know, idempotent and we, we store that. And so a, another write will generate a new hash and create a new name for it. And the lookup for these things from that, you know, from the container storage interface includes the volume and the offset and as well as the timestamp. And so we can, you, using that, you look up in the metadata server the, the actual unique name for it. Mm. And anybody who hashes to that same value will get the same reference to that. Um, so that allows us to really kind of, you know, automatically dedupe things because there's no need to rewrite it again. Um, and then, you know, as you do writes, if it exists already, then you don't need to even write it. Typically, you know, deduplication <laughs> occurs on some sort of a boundary. It can be at the file level. It can be at a block level. It's unclear to me. Is Ioneer a block device or a file device? What, so, you know, in, in the Kubernetes world, persistent volumes are, are block devices. That's what we present. And, the, the, you know, Kubernetes lays a file system on top of that. So we present a block device into the Kubernetes, you know, storage. And it's, and it's uh, read-writable by multiple containers, or is it only a single container read-write? So, so the, the usage model of Kubernetes is there's not multiple reader writers. Typically, they the, the notion is you have your data and you operate on it, um, and so because of the way our our dedupe works, you can have multiple readers off the same data, but they have their own view. So when they do their writes, they write to their own namespace. Yeah, and that namespace is a. Um artifact of Ioneer? It's not the Kubernetes namespace? Well, so it's, it, you know, when I say the namespace, it's really that addressable space that's presented for a persistent volume claim. And so it's a Kubernetes notion. I gotcha. Um, and I because gotcha. We're, 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 we're built for and in Kubernetes, you know, we're a microservices architecture. Um, that's just what we do. We don't try to do this outside of Kubernetes. We're really built for and with Kubernetes. Right, right. So the containers, let's say, in a, operating in a cluster, when they're accessing the persistent volume, does the persistent volume have to be on the same uh, worker node no. as the container is executing? No. It just has to be in the cluster someplace. It has to, it has to be in the cluster. Or, you know, it, it, when we do teleport outside of clusters, it's a special use case because you have to be able to. But inside the cluster, there's the notion of those 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 nodes that contain data, and there can be other worker nodes who are accessing data. And the and the, the worker nodes that contain data can also contain actually run containers as well, and they're running obviously the the storage container service, whatever that turns out to be. That's right. So we we you know we we run in Kubernetes as these microservices, and if they, if Kubernetes decides to run other containers in that same um, worker node, that's that's up to them. And the um. Right. So the item potency of, of the data means that, you know, if I do a write, it's 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 forever. So I can go back to the first write to a block as well as the last write to, the, to you know, the, the block. Um, and all that's being maintained in, in uh, Ioneer storage and metadata? 
Yeah, exactly. And now with with caveats, right? Because as you mentioned before, if you if you run this long enough, you'll just consume all time and space. Um, so we do have the ability to say, you know, look, um, preserve this for some time period, and you can dial that between, you know, hours, minutes, days. So months. the continuous data protection you can apply and say for this persistent volume, save it for the last two days or something like how that. How long? How long to retain that? So you can, you know, what window do you want to dial back into? And then we also have the ability to to name um, certain points in there so we can bookmark places. And then those are preserved until you actually manually get rid of them. Mm-hmm. So, so like so, if a ransomware attack occurred, you could go say, okay, the second before a ransomware attack, the good volume, something like that. Absolutely. That's exactly one of the use cases. That, um, so so Ioneer is, is, the, is the reboot of a company that was called Reduxio in the past. And so mm-hmm. they were doing tin wrap software. Um, and, you know, as the market moved away from enterprise appliances, they pivoted into the Kubernetes space. And so that ability, they actually have great customer experience with, um, I think it was a police department on the East Coast where they actually had a ransomware attack and they were able to just dial back time and recover without any input. Uh, so a couple of things. Um, container do, do containers and persistent volumes, do they have affinity to, can they have establish affinity to a node and things like that? So, so what we do in this environment is we actually utilize the ephemeral uh, disks on the, on the nodes and, they, and we pool that together as a storage and present that as logical volumes in the environment. So the nodes that have ephemeral drives that you've allocated as data storage nodes um, will present that. And so, if Kubernetes wants to do, you know, hints towards people running with uh, closer to the data, they can do that. But that's not something that we would actually manage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as far as um, data protection for the data, are you using like RAID structures or, or erasure protection or replication? So, so or the, the current version is using a three-way mirror. We sort of reach a form, um, and we have on the roadmap to do erasure encoding. Um, as we scale that out, because, you know, these clusters can have more than three nodes. As a matter of fact, many of the clusters have a lot of nodes and we only require three-way mirroring across that. So as we look at doing erasure encoding, you want to do larger writes there. So you have to be a little clever about taking small writes and grouping so you get effective stripe writing across the erasure encoding volumes. Mm -hmm. And and the data is effectively, I, I would call it log structured, on on the ephemeral disks across all the solutions, or is it? Well, no, we don't. We, so we're not. We're, you know, it's not log structured. So that's that's we're, we're a little bit different on that in the sense that the way that we do it is, you know, we we were able to do this this three way mirroring for Quorum and making sure that we have availability across that. But the metadata server is really the 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 value on that. So there's no log replay or anything like that. We simply. Um, you know, you you query based on the timestamp you want, and you get back the 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 blocks that you want for that, and then you navigate your file system accordingly. So there's no log replay or anything like that. Right, right. So the metadata server becomes a crucial data integrity aspect of the solution. How is that protected? Yeah. So so the the metadata server actually uses a, a its own um, three way mirroring. And it has a uh, 
uh, another indistinct from the user data way of storing that data because you don't want to have to re rely on the same thing. So the metadata stripper actually does that, and then we, we protect that independently. And so you mentioned, um, I don't know if it's data migration or data replication across clusters. And so in, in that scenario, you would replicate the metadata server for that named volume or for all, all the data sitting on the cluster? Only for the volumes that you want to move. And so, yeah. So we don't, we don't need to drag the whole thing over. We just simply say, hey, this is a volume. You want to bring that over here? And then so at the, at the target cluster, when accessing that named volume, uh, if the data is not there, it goes out to the originating cluster, I guess, to get the data. But are you moving the data in the background so that, in fact, the data would be replicated in both places? Or how do you control that? So, so we, we, we just do the heat maps, bring things over. We don't bring everything over. Um, and then because of this, this, this global dedupe store in each cluster, um, the other cluster is going to have its own dedupe. And any data that hashes to the same name there's no need to copy it over. So we don't start copying everything over because some of it may exist there already from other um, volumes. And so we simply do it on, on reference. So you, so you kind of merge the data between clusters <laughs> on a heat map basis. And so, you, you know, let's say I've got this volume name Ray on, on my cluster at home, my crypto cluster. And I want to, I want to replicate it to the TAD cluster sitting in, I don't know, East Coast someplace. So, so because we're, the, the, the data is, you know, we, we do a secure hash on that. We, we, we have a name on it. If you have data that hashed to that same value, it's the same data. So we don't have to copy that over. It's that exists in your system already. It just happens to have the same, uh, you know, unique, global unique um, name for it. And so for those, they just exist already because we name the data based on the contents. Um, and if you happen to have data of the same content, I, you know, a string of zeros, for instance, um, we don't need to copy that over, right? It's, it exists already in there. So, so we're not really merging the data. We're only simply saying, look, if you've already got data that exists with that same global unique name, we don't need to copy. Okay, but... but you know, so I got this volume on my crypto server called ETH1 or Chia12 or something like that. And I want to I want to replicate it over to the TAD cluster on the East Coast. And so the metadata gets merged, right? I mean, so the, this metadata that's associated with Chia12 is a list of hashes, let's say, for the data blocks, right? Isn't that how this works? Yeah, yeah you, you've got the right model. And, the, and then that metadata is going to be copied over to the TAD cluster. And now Chia 12 as a volume sort of simulated, but exists on the TAD cluster. Now, as you access the data, are you generating the heat map at that point? Or do you already have a heat map from the Ray cluster that you're copying over? We have the heat map from the, the access patterns from the, the, the cluster that was. Oh, so you'll. And you'll you'll copy that data over over time so that it makes sure yeah. it's available at the the TAD cluster. The data that we need to copy exactly. Huh. So so it it allows you to teleport things across like that. Now th those are unique cases. Probably the the more germane use case that we should probably zero in more on is around. You know, think of your your normal CI/CD pipeline. You've got a team of you know engineers working on this, and you. 
you know, you, you've got a, a, a database that you've cleaned for the development team to use. They typically, you know, have to go through and make a copy of that data um, as they go through their, you know, their, um, their DevOps pipeline, right? And so, so as they copy that, that takes time. And then they, they, they move it through the different, you know, integration test, deploy to dev, deploy to QA. And as they go through that, they're copying data across the pipelines. With us, they simply just get another name for it and they start using it. And when they do hit an error, uh, instead of having to create a new copy of it, they can just simply say, reset it back to the time so I have consistent data to test against again. Um, so, you know, if you look at that, that that pipeline goes from hours down to minutes. Because, because you're not copying data, data anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. So, and, and more importantly, you can now have parallel streams going because the, you don't pay a price for that extra data because mostly it's reading and what they do write is what they get separately. But now you can actually have, you know, multiple streams of developers working off that same data set um, without interfering with each other and then resetting and moving along. So you really eliminate the data bottleneck and you really let the pipeline go much faster. And that's a use case that's more typical, right? This notion of teleporting across is is unique and is, is useful for some cases, but that's not the, the main use cases really around this DevOps pipeline, you know, acceleration. And, and that's because you're not really copying data to go from dev to test to QA or something like that. You're just copying metadata, I guess, right? In those cases, it's all in the same cluster. So you simply say, here, give me, you know, I want my own, I want my own copy of that. You get the name of it and then, you you access the same things, but now when you do writes, you create your own your own write patterns. So why why do you think that stateful containers are becoming more important in the Kubernetes world? I mean, it's always been stateless. Plus, the databases have been outside the Kubernetes environment. But something's happened in the last couple of years to make stateful containers be more interesting. It's always been there, but I think that you know the the, the initial push was let's get stateful, let's get stateless, right? Let's just go do those. Um, and you look at the big financial institutions, they've got you know, 20,000 programmers, they've got all these applications that they developed using various databases. They don't wanna rewrite those to target them to a database service in the cloud environment. They wanna bring them along because the guys who wrote those things have moved on, but they wanna bring it into this environment. And so what you're seeing now is as people bring stuff over, the lift and shift kind of thing, right? It, it, it's it's more the refactoring, right? They they kind of bring it over. The database comes over as a service, but then they refactor the application to a microservices. But they don't need to have to retarget it. Um, and so there's a lot of you know that's what's pulling things now. Whereas before it was like, you know, the first wave was we're going to develop it in the cloud for the cloud, and we're going to use all the services there. But as you start to move towards people thinking more seriously about multi-cloud. That's harder to do because to retarget to another cloud, then you have to retarget to the other database services. If you bring your data with you, you don't have to do that. So what's a typical installation look like for Ioneer these days from a, from a data size perspective? And I'm not, I guess the, not the replicated data, but but the actual data. Yeah, that, 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 the answer is always the one you hate, which is it depends. Um, because, you know, the, 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 the example, one of our customers is using um, Citus, you know, the, the Postgres database. And, the, and for them, it's a fairly large database. And what they love about us is because we have that availability, when Citus would go down before, they'd have to wait for it to rebuild everything. Um, and with us, 
because of the availability in the, in the mirroring, we're able to have them back up in minutes instead of hours. And so the size, um, it, I don't know the exact size of it. It's a fairly substantial thing because they're collecting all the security information. Um, and then, you know, you look at the DevOps cases. In those cases, it's really hard because for some of them, it's production data, and those can get fairly big. But most databases in that space don't get huge, right? I mean, that you don't see multi-terabyte, you know, Gig, you know, it's it, they're usually you know smaller databases that are built around for that application specific use case. Um, so you, you're not seeing the, the SAP oracles moving into this space yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we haven't seen not. them yet. Maybe. Maybe. I, don't, I don't know. That's yeah. a different discussion. So you mentioned high availability. How would you characterize the Ionir solution? Is it a highly available storage environment or not? Yeah, so so if you think about you know in the um, in the Kubernetes cluster environment, because you've got this data mirrored across you know a, a cluster of machines, as as nodes fail, especially in the public cloud, as they go away, we can keep keep running because we can still have quorum. If you blow the whole thing out, then you have to kind of rebuild it. But um, and that's that's a cluster failure as opposed to a node failure. Node failures are much more frequent, and in that case, we provide you know it, it just keeps running. And then we can, you know, we can you know, keep moving along on that. So it's, it is a high availability solution targeted at, you know, persistent workloads in this environment. So the metadata becomes extremely important during high availability solutions. Are you backing up the metadata? Is there some sort of, I mean, obviously the triple redundancy helps, but are you replicating it someplace else or? So, so in the on-prem solution, it's 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 you know you you back up your systems how you back them up and we 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 provide you to do that in the cloud we persist it off to you know the 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 the, the Elastic Box storage in AWS for instance and then you can you can snapshot it if you want we haven't integrated with the other backup products as of yet um, but that's the thing to start looking at it and then on our roadmap for future work is really this ability to tier across different um, storage types because. Our microservices architecture allows us to add new storage nodes in the background, so we can have, you know, the the, the ephemeral drives. We can have EBS volumes, and we can even have S3, and then the ability to move data across those as we need to. And that's roadmap. It's in the future. It's not in the product today. Yeah. So, so today, would you be using uh, SSD storage? I mean, does the storage have to be? A, the same capacity across all the storage nodes, I mean, the storage disks, and B, does it have to be the same type? Could you mix SSDs and disk drives, for instance? And I'm not sure what the EBS terms are for those. The use case that we've seen, mostly people have stopped using hard drives except for really large volume storage, and everybody just kind of solves their I.O. problems with SSD now because the price points are so low. So we haven't really tried to mix and match SSD and HDD because that would just be the latencies are so far off. So we really, you know, on the ephemeral drives, we work with SSDs, typically with NVMe if it's available, because that's the best performance we can get out of it. Um, and then we're working on um, a blended thing where we'll use that with a GP2 or whatever the storage you want to use on the EBS farms in the backside. So how many, uh, so about how many customers, I mean, I noticed you have a free download, free online thing, but I, I didn't see anything about the pricing. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the cost of such a solution. Yeah, so we we typically price out like the other persistent storage solutions for Kubernetes, which is on a per node cost basis. Um, and 
So this is per node in the cluster, whether they're data or, or no, worker per, nodes? Per, per data uh, node, per data. So I could, you know, I could potentially have a data node with 24 SSDs in it if I had, you know, on-prem or something like that. That's the same price as one with three? Yeah, we, we, we bent it around the idea of capacity-based pricing. And I think it's just, as you look at where the market's going, it's it's really, you know, this edge to private to public cloud. And we wanted a pricing model that worked across those. And we do price differently for the on-prem versus the cloud because the cloud things typically, but it's still a per node basis. And I noticed on your on your website, you mentioned edge quite a lot. I hadn't considered persistent volumes being relatively useful on the edge. Are you seeing a lot of call for that? So we're, we're getting into good conversations on it now. I don't want to be too specific on it, but if you look at the whole um, evolution of 5G, it's all Kubernetes based. And the, 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 as we start to see how the carriers are building out these micro data centers, if you will, in the cells, well, they were actually putting little data centers out there as well. And then you look at some of the use cases where they're actually doing remote. Uh, one, one company I talked to, they were a, a mining company out of uh, Scandinavian. And th when they go into a place, they, they plop down a little edge data center. Uh, and then they have a bunch of uh, drones that go up and survey the land and, and figure out the mining process for it. And that's local data then linked to remote data. We're not working with them yet, but I just love their story because they, they're really doing it for, for completely edged to the public cloud and that whole pipeline because they they have to be able to run independently when they're in these remote locations, but they want to link it up to a central system because they use that data to optimize their mining processes. Right, right, right. So in that, in that scenario where you've got this persistent volume really being generated at the edge, but you want it to be available at the, the core center or something like, or on the cloud, uh, would you be pushing more data than just a heat map when you replicate that data? I mean, is, you know, the heat map is an interesting idea, but the data doesn't actually exist in both places, right? So, so, so you're right, and that's well, the data exists if it if it if it's, it's accessible, right. yes, but the latency but, is different. But you're right. right. In this case, where you want to move data to the core, you have to move the data, right? Because that's because. The other, the other case we're talking about is more remote access coming in. This is really pushing data back up. Um, and that's a roadmap thing for us to look at how we, you know, replicate data into a core as opposed to the current model, which is your data is operating in the cluster and you have, you know, you want to teleport access method out. As far as there's really no limit to how much teleportation or how many different clusters I can teleport some Ray volume out to if I want Chia 12 or something like that. Yeah, it, that's right. It, it, it's really because it's it's a simple naming um, system and you basically And just, metadata replication kind of thing, yeah. 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 Huh. And then, so that you mentioned dedupe and you're using some sort of hash. Is this like a SHA-256 or 512 on the data or do you talk about that SHA? I, I, so it, it's a SHA hash. I don't. Remember, I, I'm not going to get into the details of it, but exactly that, right? We do a secure hash on the data to come up with a unique name, and then the metadata server will map volume offset and timestamp into that secure hash for the for the data that was you know indexed by that. So most snapshot technologies and stuff like use copy on write or copy on. You know, we don't have to do that. Yeah, 
if, if it exists or it exists and the name is already there. And if it's new data, we just, we write the new data. So there's no copy on write per se. But the metadata has to be updated regardless. Yeah. So the metadata is going to track us. So the, 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 you, you're focusing in on the right thing and the real unique thing about this product and the, the implementation and the, and the, the beauty of it is, is around the metadata. And there's a lot of magic inside that in terms of how we do that and a number of patents on that around how we're able to, you know, like the age old problem of, you know, writing data and the metadata and, you know, how do you manage that synchronously because you don't want to end up with a, a dangling reference or data or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and we actually have a unique way of doing that simultaneously and, and, and maintaining that. And we've got patents on that. And you mentioned earlier that um, you, you can add data nodes to the cluster uh, on demand without having to take the system down or bring it back up or anything like that? That's right. And you can lose nodes as well. I understand the lose nodes, but lose nodes is, you know, they yeah, were so there all along and they're gone now. <laughs> now well, now I want to add another node to this cluster. So how do you, do you, do you spread the information now at this point or, or not? Yeah, we do. We do. We, 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 we spread it out. We don't try to balance it completely, but we do start to balance it some. So you get, you know, better resiliency and better utilization of different nodes. And so you can keep adding them and we spread the data around on them. Is the data physical address some sort of a hashing mechanism across the nodes? So, I mean, I've got a block I want to write to something. I, I, I have to decide where in the ephemeral storage or... Let, let, let's talk about the architecture for a little bit. I think that will okay. help. Okay, go for this, that. Right, because, because you're, you're going right where the architecture leads you to, which is, you know, it, it, the, the basic model is that there's three main microservices to the product. And the metadata one we've talked a lot about. There's also the, um, the front end that presents the CSI. Um, and, and we call those the, the, the pictures. They basically catch the data from the thing and they send it off to the metadata server to map it. And then they go to the persistent storage um, things we call the keepers. And the keepers um, will take care of storing that data. And um, so when you look at how this works, the, the, the thing that interfaces the CSI is the one who knows how you're accessing the data. And he simply goes to the, to the metadata server says, you know, I've got this, you know, volume offset timestamp, give me the name for it. And then he knows which keeper to go to, to ask for it. And the keeper then will do the mapping to the actual physical storage. So even so though they, the physical storage might be on some other data node. No. So, so the keeper is the thing that actually owns the data that they live where the data, where the storage devices are. And so, you know, it, with the exceptions of things like it, if you have a keeper for, for S3, it's, it's going to be the interface to S3 in this case, but they're the ones who actually know they're the ones who map, you know, kind of like that name to the physical storage location. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in this case, the physical storage location is at least three different physical devices, right? So the keeper, the keeper in that case knows that. And, and, and those, do those physical devices have to be on the same node or can they be spread across? Oh, no, they have to, data we, nodes? Want them, we want them across separate nodes. So we have better availability. So they are. So the keeper actually can access the data on, other nodes than the physical data nodes it's access. Yes. So in, in the case of this, it, it understands the topology of where the data is stored and, and, and how that works exactly. And so, so, so the keeper masks all that from everybody else. So you don't, 
anyone accessing it doesn't have to understand that. The keeper is the one who presents that. So the keeper, in my mind, is essentially a block server. It says, here's a block I want to access, and it goes and finds it and gives it back to you or something like that. Yeah, except it's, it's it, yes, exactly. So you, you come in with the name and say, hey, you know, here's the thing I want. You know, I, you, I have the name for it. You go give me the data associated with that name and bring it back for me. And there's, there's effectively a keeper associated with every data node? So there, there's a keeper associated with every data storage type. So you can have keepers for the, you know, this, this three-way mirrored ephemeral. You can have a keeper for EBS. You can have a keeper for S3. Um, and they understand how that data topology is stored. So there's one keeper per tier, I would call it. Yeah, you can call it a tier. And, and, and so, but the keeper has to be... At, it has to be replicated across multiple nodes, so in case one goes down, it can continue right. to go on and stuff like that. Exactly. And uh, does the keeper become a bottleneck in this scenario? If 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 I've got flash devices on prem, uh, you know, and I've got, I guess I would have at least two keepers, if not more, right? So, the, so, so the way it works is that no, the keeper does not become the bottleneck on that because it's simply the the, the, the mapping of it. So if you've got um, a lot of data nodes, you, you understand the mapping of that and you can say, look, you know, I need to go get that data from this spot over here. But Tad, there's only one keeper for that solution, right? No, no, no. So, so, let's, let's, so the, there's a type of keeper. I didn't say, I'm sorry, there's not necessarily one instance of keeper. There's a type of keeper. And there's multiple instances of the keeper, yes. So... And so I could scale up the keepers if I thought yes. I needed more. I could scale them down if I didn't need more, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. So because we we built it to be, you know, kind of a, a good microservices thing, you can scale the, the the catchers, you can scale the metadata servers, you can scale the keepers to, to match your 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 workloads. Mm-hmm. 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 And adding a new data node just adds it to a keeper set <laughs> that it knows about. Yes. And uh, it can start migrating data if it needs to, but in the end it's 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 just there, right? Right. So so you and that's that's all hidden from you. You don't have to think about that, right? The keeper mm-hmm. just presents it to you and it will manage. So you know, I forget what our biggest um, cluster is, but it's an on data, it's an on site one, but it, it, it can scale pretty large, right? And so um, we haven't pretty seen large problems. Petabyte, yeah. pretty large terabytes. I, I think it's terabytes. I, I don't hold me to that one. I don't know the exact number on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Kubernetes has become very important to VMware as well. The the whole you know, I can't even think of the name now, but Tanzu services and stuff like that. Do you guys operate under any Kubernetes cluster, or is there certain ones that you work with, or? So, so it's funny you bring up Tanzu and you say, "Do you operate under any?" So yeah, so so today we work under any kind of um, standard Kubernetes cluster. So if you abide by that, and then you know, so if it's your own operated cluster versus even a, a managed one, as long as it's you know the standard Kubernetes cluster, we work in it because we don't have any special dependencies on it. Um, in Tanzu. We haven't done any testing with that. We've tested on, you know, Google Cloud, on Azure, on AWS, and then on, you know, on on Rancher and 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 um, and the OpenShift in the data center, and as well as the upstream version. Right, 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 right. So I saw somewhere in your your blog or or website there was a one line installation thing. How, how does this work? 
Most installations take more than one line, I'll have to say. <laughs> so it's 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 the classic, you know, uh, there's a lot of magic hidden behind that one line in terms of, you know, look, there's that's a script that actually takes and and you know, pulls down from the repository the different microservices you need and make sure they get installed and things like that. So it's it's not, you know, one line per se. It's a, a script that actually manages that for you. So the university is one line, but there's a lot more that goes on there. And the and the free service is that how is that limited, or is it limited in time, or limited in space, or? So it's it's limited to the number of nodes, the number of data nodes. So the idea is, you know, like a small cluster, you can operate it for free for infinity. Um, but if you want to start scaling it up and having a lot more data nodes in it and stuff like that, then you should come back and talk to us. But there's no functionality gates or anything like that that's inhibited no. No, when it, you do this. It, it, the thing is, right, you know, for that whole model, you really want to show the value. And if you hide it behind a paywall, they can't really uncover what the product can really do. And we we view it as, you know, look, they, if they start using it, they're going to eventually grow to where they need to do more. Talk to me about operations of the system. I mean, is it is it all API driven and there's no GUI at all? Or is the GUI associated with it? Tells you, you know, how much storage you're consuming and whether you're going to go out, run out of storage or anything like that. So, so the, the, the answer is it's all through a REST API and we have a UI that it communicates to the product through that same REST API. Um, and, and so using the, Grafana or something like that to... So we have Prometheus and Grafana in the background and we can, you know, monitor on that. Um, and then we use, you know, the UI is written, I think, in, in um, Angular. Um, and, you know, it's... So, you know, you can, you can look at and view in what you want to do. You can specify a teleportation. You can say, look, I want to create a, a backtrack time, you know, time travel back on this volume through the UI, or you can do it through the REST APIs. And you're pretty well integrated in the CI CD tools and stuff like that, or? Well, so we're, we're working on that, right? So we, what we do is we found that um, when we get out and start talking to people, there's real interest in this. And so we've been working with, you know, uh, we don't have a, a Jenkins tool or, or a Circle CI tool, but we do have the ability to integrate with them. And we're talking to some folks who are doing kind of DevOps in a box where they want to integrate us into their solution. I can't talk about who that is just yet. Right. Um, but the idea is that we can we can help you integrate it into your pipeline. It's not a product because everybody's pipelines are their own pipelines. So we help you integrate it into it, or we'll work with partners who can actually do that for you. Right. You mentioned partners. Are you are you guys do anything with like managed service partners? Um... Or multi-tenancy, I guess, is the question that's typically yeah. <laughs> asked in a scenario, right? Do you guys support multi-tenancy? And what would it even look like in Kubernetes? I have no idea. Well, that's the problem is Kubernetes doesn't really do multi-tenancy. So you have to kind of like uh, skin that cat each time. Um, and it depends on the managed service provider. So in the one case, we have somebody where they're actually doing multi-tenancy, but it was how they did it. And so we worked with them to make sure we work with that. Um, it, because it, because Kubernetes didn't tackle multi-tenancy, there isn't a, oh, yeah, we, we just do Kubernetes multi-tenancy. You have to kind of go look at how they solved it and, you know, what roles they defined and, you know, how they're doing that. Um, but, yeah, you have to you have to support it somehow. Um, we're, we expect to make a lot more progress on that as we go forward because we think that, you know, in this 
Kubernetes universe, the biggest problem people have is skill set shortage. And so they're turning to trusted advisors like managed service providers and folks to help them implement. And so it's it's the logical thing to work with them because they're the ones who customers are turning to for help. You know, there's the really advanced shops who know what they're doing. But by and large, the, the bulk of the market is really looking for help on, on this. That brings up a question about professional services. Do you guys have a professional services organization that, that people can call on to, to help? you know, deploy, install, and optimize these sorts of solutions? I'm not trying to be asked. Now. We will help you do that. We don't have an organization per yet, but we will build that out. And so we, you know, we, we handle it now. And, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's a professional service organization, but we do, you know, we, we see that as a need that you have to do to help people be successful. And that's, you know, we're a startup, so we're going to help them be successful. And I, I didn't see anywhere where you guys talked about open source. So I'm assuming Ironeer is all proprietary code, that sort of thing. Yep, that's safe to say. Okay. Okay. I think I'm about exhausted here. Tad, anything you'd like to say to our listening audience before we close? Yeah. I mean, I think that you, you, you already made the intro. Like, go check out our website. If you see, you know, try it out. Um, it's a really cool product. And, uh, you know, we'd love to have you kind of investigate it some more. But, um, no, I think Ray, you 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 did a good job of poking poking at all the little spots on it. Okay, I enjoyed okay. it. Well, this has been great, Tad. Thank you very much for being on our show today. Thank you, Ray. And that's it for now. Bye, Tad. Bye, Ray. Until next time. Next time, we will talk to another system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the word out.